you guys know Easter is just around the corner. It's the time when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, which that histor- it's that historical event that gives hope and meaning to, uh, to our faith as believers. And today is what's usually called Palm Sunday, or sometimes it's spoken of in relation to Christ's entry into Jerusalem, and we call it the triumphal entry of Christ. But today we're not going to look at the palm, tr- the, the palm waving and, and uh, his ride into Jerusalem, even though it's an important part of his passion, even though it fulfills spe- oh, excuse me, specific prophecy in the Old Testament. We're not going to focus on that today. Instead, we're going to look at an Old Testament uh, prophecy that tells about the meaning of the cross from God's point of view. We're going to be in Isaiah 53 today, and we're going to start in verse 1 in just a moment. So head there if you would. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. And as we read this, you'll probably recognize some of the language from this, uh, from this chapter. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's just 12 verses. But you'll probably recognize it because it's quoted seven or eight times in the New Testament. Then there's also that famous account out of the book of Acts. You remember uh, the Holy Spirit told Philip, he said, uh, go down here to this, uh, to this road. Now, he probably didn't say it quite like a Missourian would say it, but he said, go down yonder. And, uh, and Philip was having good success where he was at. He was, he was basically having a revival. People were getting saved, but, but the Holy Spirit told Philip, you need to go down this road and join up with this chariot. You remember this story? And there's this Ethiopian eunuch who, was, who had traveled to Jerusalem to worship God. He was traveling back. And when Philip got to the chariot, he heard this eunuch reading off the scroll of Isaiah. And the, por- the portion that he was reading was Isaiah 53. And so Philip walks up to him and says, uh, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless somebody explains it? And is, he, is this prophet talking about himself or somebody else? And beginning there, the Bible says Philip preached Jesus to him and, and this Ethiopian eunuch believed. And so what I want you to do is I want you to see the same thing that this Ethiopian eunuch saw, and that is a picture of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Now, not just, what, not just a picture of him, but more what he did for you and for me. Okay, so if you found Isaiah 53, please stand, if you would, to honor God's word, and we will pick up in verse 1. Isaiah says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. This is God, the Father speaking now. He says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, for, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Thank you. you may be seated. Now the first thing that I want you to see in our text today is found in verses 1 to 3, and that is a simple servant. He was a simple servant. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. Now, the prophet Isaiah begins with, it seems to me, if, and of course I can't, I can't know what was going through his mind whenever he penned these words, but it seems like there's a note of frustration and, and maybe some amazement in his writing here. He says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, Isaiah and many of the other prophets have said, The Messiah is coming. Your king is coming to you, and yet people, the nation, did not believe the prophet's words. And you think, well, that's, that's because that was a long time off in the future. Isaiah's writing some 700 plus years before the time of Christ. That, that, that would be hard to believe. And so it must be better whenever Jesus comes onto the scene. But then we, when we read the Gospels, we, saw that, we, we see that just the opposite is the case. Even when Jesus was there in the flesh, people still did not believe. For instance, in John chapter 11, Jesus did one, one of his uh, greatest miracles. And, of course, they're all great because they're all uh, uh, ways that God has shown his power and his glory. But in John chapter 11, you remember uh, Jesus' good friend Lazarus had gotten sick and died. And Jesus shows up, and, and by the time he gets there, uh, Lazarus has been dead and in the grave for four, four days. And what does he do? He raises him to life. He says, Lazarus, come forth and all these things. And many people believed, but the Bible also says there were a lot of people who still didn't believe even though they saw this great miracle. Then in chapter 12, the Bible says that Jesus predicts his death. He does many signs and wonders, many miracles. And yet the Bible says that there, there were people who were still not believing and they quote, John quotes this very text. He, he says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, when he's talking about the arm of the Lord, he's talking about, that's an ancient way of talking about the power of God. They had seen the power of God on display. He had performed miracles in their midst, and yet they refused to believe. Now, why did they not believe? Well, the Bible gives several reasons, um, one of which is in our text today. If you look again at verse 2, it says, For, because, because he was not impressive. The Bible says he grew up like a, a shoot before the father, and, and, and like a root out of parched ground, there was no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, Jesus was like a, like a shoot that grew up from a steaming, seemingly dead stump of royalty. The, 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 the Davidic line, the, the, the line of, of King David seemed to be dead. There was no king of uh, of the descendant of David sitting on the throne of Israel. And in fact, when Jesus came onto the scene, there was no throne to sit on. And it seemed like all was lost. And yet, onto the scene comes the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, from the line of the tribe of David. Now, this Jesus wasn't born in a palace. You remember when the, when the wise men came, where did they go first? They didn't go to Bethlehem. 
they went to Jerusalem, the capital city. That's where all the important people are. But yet, Jesus wasn't there. He wasn't there in his birth. He, he wasn't born in a palace. He didn't, he didn't have a, an impressive entourage. You ever see on TV where there's a movie star going down the street? And, and there's just a, just a flock of people, right? And I mean, they're just flocking around this, this, this celebrity. And they usually have a, a great big, huge bodyguard, maybe two or three of them if, if they think they're real important. And I mean, sometimes they, if, if they're dignitaries, governments, uh, heads of government or something like that, I mean, they got dignity everywhere. And it's impressive to look at. But can you imagine Jesus? He didn't have a, an impressive entourage. He had a bunch of misfits following him around. He had Peter, who couldn't say anything right. He, he had a bunch of, of uh, he had tax collectors and, and fishermen. He even had a reformed terrorist. That's what one of them was. He, he was part of a group, Simon the Zealot. The zealots were people that went around and they murdered uh, Romans. He had a reformed terrorist in his midst as part of his entourage. And to look at him, you'd say, that's not too impressive. He, he, he didn't have anything that, when you look at him, that you'd say, that's a guy that I'm going to follow around. He didn't have a silver spoon in his mouth. He didn't have robes of royalty wrapped around him. He was humble in his birth. The Bible says he was laid in a manger. Why? No room for him in the end. And, and as a child, we all want to know what Jesus was like growing up. Nobody paid any attention to him. The Bible says that the only person that paid much attention to him was the Heavenly Father. Look, it says in verse 2, he grew up like a shoot before him. God the Father was about the only one that paid any attention to Jesus. In his life, he was poor. He said, foxes, of the, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but what? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In his death, he was, he was condemned. He was, he was numbered among the accursed. He was numbered among criminals, and he was crucified as such. And there was nothing about him that would attract people in a, from a natural standpoint. He was the original who's who, but you couldn't buy a book that has his picture in it. Why? Because nobody, he, he, he was considered a nobody. He was not esteemed. In fact, worse than that, verse 3, if you look what it says, it says, He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. He didn't walk around with a bunch of pomp and circumstance. He was a lowly, simple servant of the Lord. And as God often does, he uses that low and seemingly foolish and insignificant things of the world to confound the wise. Now, don't misunderstand. We look at this, and we might be tempted to think, wow, God the Father was kind of mean to make Jesus get off the throne of glory and go into a and going to earth. And there are some who, who mock the faith and they, they look at the cross and say, that they say well, that's a, a case of cosmic child abuse. But listen, the Father did not force the Son to go to the cross. Out of His love, Jesus humbled Himself. He gave of Himself to take our place. If, if you write in your Bible or if you write notes in, in uh, your bulletin or something, you might jot down Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. It, speaking of Jesus, it says who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to at all costs, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus willingly, lovingly, sacrificially gave himself a ransom for many. Now, it's here that Isaiah spends most of his time in this chapter. And I want you to notice with me 
um, the substitutions that take place. Look again at verse 4. It says, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, understand when it, it talks about this, this passage as a whole speaks of spiritual truth. Okay, so when it uses language like this of healing and, and things like that, for instance, later it says, by, your, by his stripes we are healed, um, it, it's talking about a spiritual reality that happens because of his death. But understand that this, this verse, at least, is not restricted to that. And maybe, I, I'm going to show you something that maybe you never, have never noticed before. In Jesus' healing ministry, this, this text is actually quoted in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus comes to Capernaum. Now, Peter lived there, and his mother-in-law was sick. Do you remember that? There's a story. Peter's mother-in-law was sick. Jesus goes in. He heals her in Matthew chapter 8. And then it says that all the people, all the, all the townspeople began in verse 16. It says, when, when the evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. And here's, here's the key, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now, if, if you'll notice verse 4, that word griefs and sorrows, the Hebrew word can also mean our, our diseases and our pains. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 8, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus in his healing ministry took on, at the very least, the burdens of those that he healed. Do you realize that? Because we think of the miracles many times as, as just raw power on display. Jesus made a lame man walk, and that was it. Power. But Matthew says there's more than that. And sometimes we might think to ourselves, well, if I had the power to do that, I would be doing it too. I'd be just healing everybody. But I wonder how many of us would do that if we knew that we'd have to take on the burden of those infirmities. But Jesus did that. And that's why the book of Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who is touched with our infirmities. He's been there and done that. He has entered into our pain and our weaknesses. And, and so rather than esteem him highly for doing that, the Bible says that we, in verse 4, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, Jesus endured the sorrow and grief, especially during his crucifixion, and many people who were standing there said, he had it coming. He got what he had coming. But the fact of the matter is, he got what we had coming. He got what we deserved, not what he deserved. Now, verse 5 uh, talks about this substitution uh, as well. You'll notice verse 5, that he uses very vivid terms to describe the suffering of the Messiah. He says he was pierced through for our transgressions. That happened quite literally, didn't it? With his hands and his feet and his brow and his side. And in a sense, our sin were, were those thorns in his brow. Our sin were those nails in his hands and feet and the spear in his side. The Bible says he was crushed. He took the chastening that was due to us. He was scourged, bringing about our spiritual healing. You'll notice verse 5. Why? Because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all strayed from that good shepherd. But instead of the sheep bearing the punishment for doing that, Christ, the suffering servant, bore the Father's wrath. And what I want you to see here is the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf. And I want to tell you, just on a personal note, whenever I was studying this this week, and I've preached this text before, 
But when I read it this week, I was more ashamed than I ever have been in the past when I've, when I've studied it. Because, I, I, again, I want you to notice this text. Look at it closely. And, and if you mark in your Bible, you might mark them uh, similar to what we're going to do up here. And we're going to hope, okay, well, it's already been done. So um, it's all right. I want you to notice. Look at all the hours and the we's in red. Look at all the yellows. Surely our griefs who bore, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we're healed. Do you see the substitution there? And, and again, sometimes we read this and we're like, okay, 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 I've read this before, I've heard this before, and we just glaze over it. But I just want you to, to notice the substitution. It's not just those verses. And, you know, later it talks about uh, uh, he bore the sin of, of, of many, and the stroke was due to us. And yet Christ took our place. He was the one that took our place. And as I read this and as I pondered and I thought about it, I was ashamed that Jesus took my place. And I thought to myself, he shouldn't have done that. But then almost as soon as I thought, I thought, I sure am glad he did. Because otherwise, that'd be me. That was under the just punishment and wrath of God. But Jesus, the Son of God, the suffering servant, was our substitute. It was our grief, our sorrow, our transgression, our iniquity, our chastening, our scourging. But he took it all. We were the guilty party. It was all due to us. Our sin deserves the punishment. But Jesus took it. And as I said, I was, I was ashamed. But I'm also awful thankful. The Bible says, But God in his great love and mercy made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, you'll probably recognize some of this. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Sound familiar? On the, on the cross, Jesus offered himself as sacrifice for the sins of his people. And if you will believe in him, you will be saved. Not on the basis of what you have done, not on the basis of what you can do, but on what Christ has already done. What he did on the cross. He was your substitute. He died in your place. Now, there's a lot more we could look at. There's a lot more we could look at just in our text today. We could look at, at the prophecy and the foreshadow of, of Jesus being crucified among thieves. We could look at the biblical accuracy of, of him being with a rich man in his death. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. We could look at his example that we're to follow of how he responded when persecuted. He didn't open his mouth. He, he didn't revile in return. But I want us to slip down to verse 10. As we, as we wrap up. And in this closing section, I want us to see the satisfied Savior, or the satisfied Son. Look at verse 10. It says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Jesus will see many sons brought to glory. 
he'll say it is worth it. I'm satisfied. I am, I am content. I suffered and I am satisfied to see these, these sons and daughters of God brought to glory. His days will be prolonged. He, he, he died for sin, but he's never going to die again. He was raised with resurrection power, and because of that, death's grip has been broken. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. He is now set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This gracious, gracious salvation of wicked, rebellious sinners like me and like you brings glory to all three of the members of the Trinity because all of them are involved in our salvation. Now, if you look at verse 12 right at the end, this chapter uh, closes by repeating the substitutionary work of Christ on the sinner's behalf. The one, Jesus himself, bore the sin of many. He took the wrath that our sin deserved. And if you'll put your faith in him, you will experience peace with God. Your sins will be forgiven. He'll remember them against you no longer. There's nothing that you can do or I can do to add to salvation or to take away from salvation. What did Jesus say on the cross? He said, it is finished. There's nothing else to be done. Jesus paid it all. The question is, will you respond to him in faith? Will you trust him alone for your salvation? Will you be forgiven? And maybe you say, Pastor, I've done that. Did a long time ago. Did a short time ago. This is a powerful reminder of what Christ has done for us. And sometimes we're we're kind of like a you know a dripping faucet. It gets your attention at first, doesn't it? But after a while, you don't even hear it. Back whenever they'd have war horses, I've heard that after a while the horses would get so used to cannons going off beside them. It happened, and they wouldn't even flinch. And sometimes we as Christians get that way about the truth, about God's grace. We hear sermon after sermon. We read it time after time in the Bible. And at first, when we're first Christians, boy, it makes us tremble like that horse here in the canon. But after a while, we get kind of deaf to it. We get kind of callous to it. But this is a reminder of the grace that God bestowed on us when we didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. And today would be a great day to, to remember those things and to say thanks to God. Why don't you stand with me as musicians come? As you stand, I'd ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Nobody looking around. I just, I just ask you, have you ever been forgiven by God? Have you ever turned from your sin in contrition, sadness, true remorse? Have you ever turned to God in faith, trusting in Christ alone and what he's done on your behalf? salvation because the Bible says if you will put your faith in him you will be saved all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved are we like those ten lepers that Jesus healed and only one of them came back to say thanks
God has forgiven us. We just take it for granted. We lose sight of the sinfulness of our sin. God, thank you. It doesn't have to be out loud. Just in your heart as you communicate with him in prayer. Think about your life that you once lived. But God. Our Lord and our God, we we consider these things and we see the substitutionary work of Christ. And that's a great big word. It means Jesus took her place. And we're so grateful for it. When we didn't deserve it, when we were your enemies, that you gave us spiritual life. You adopted us into your family. You made us who were once not your people, your people. God, we thank you for your grace to us. If there's somebody here who's never experienced that grace firsthand, God, I pray that you would convict their hearts, draw them to yourself, and let them become followers of Christ today. In Jesus' name.